The Crystal Shard, Chapter 19, Grim Tidings Drizzt padded through the tunnels and past the bodies of the dead giants, slowing only to grab another hunk of mutton from the large table. He crossed through the support beams and started down the dim hallway, tempering his eagerness with common sense. If the giants had hidden their treasure down here, the chamber holding it might be behind a concealed door, or there might even be some beast, though not likely another giant since it would have joined in the fighting. The tunnel was quite long running straight northward, and Drizzt figured that he was now moving underneath the mass of Kelvin's Karn. He'd passed the last torch, but he was glad for the darkness. He had lived the majority of his life traveling tunnels in the lightless subterranean world of his people, and his large eyes guided him in absolute darkness more accurately than in areas of light. The hallway ended abruptly at a barred iron-bound door, its metal holding bar locked in place by a large chain and padlock. Drizzt felt a pang of guilt for leaving Wolfgar behind. The drow had two weaknesses. Foremost was the thrill of battle, but a close second was the tingle of uncovering the booty of his vanquished foes. It wasn't the gold or gems that lured Drizzt. He didn't care for wealth and rarely even kept any of the treasure he'd won. It was simply the thrill of viewing them for the first time. The excitement of sifting through them and perhaps discovering some incredible artifact that had been lost to knowledge in ages past or maybe the spellbook of an ancient and powerful mage. His guilt feelings flew away as he pulled the small lockpick from his belt pouch. He'd never been formally trained in the thieving arts, but he was agile and coordinated as any master burglar. With his sensitive fingers and acute hearing, he wasn't particularly challenged by this clumsy lock. In a matter of seconds, it fell open. Driz listened carefully for any sounds behind the door. Hearing none, he gently lifted the large bar and set it aside. Listening one last time, he drew one of his scimitars, held his breath in anticipation, and pushed in the door. His breath came back out with a disappointed sigh. The room beyond glowed with the waning light of two torches. It was small and empty, except for a large, metal-rimmed mirror standing in its center. Drizzt dodged out of the mirror's path, well aware of some of the strange magical properties these items had been known to exhibit, and moved in to examine it more closely. It was about half the height of a man, but propped up to eye level by an intricately worked iron stand. That it was lined in silver and in such an out-of-the-way chamber led Driss to believe that there was something more here than an ordinary mirror. Yet his scrutinizing inspection revealed no arcane runes or markings of any kind that hinted about its properties. Able to discover nothing unusual about the piece, Driss carelessly stepped in front of the glass. Suddenly, a pinkish mist began to swirl within the mirror, giving the appearance of a three-dimensional space trapped within the flatness of the glass. Drizzt jumped to the side, more curious than afraid, and watched the growing spectacle. The mist thickened and puffed as though fed by some hidden fire. Then its center mushroomed out and opened into a clear image of a man's face, a gaunt, hollowed visage painted in the tradition of some of the southern cities. "'Why do you bother me?' the face asked in the empty room before the mirror. Driz took another step to the side, further away from the apparition's line of sight. He considered confronting the mysterious mage, but figured that his friends had too much at stake for him to take such a reckless chance. Stand before me, big grin, commanded the image. It waited for several seconds, sneering impatiently and growing increasingly tense. When I discover which of you idiots inadvertently summoned me, I shall turn you into a coney and put you in a pit of wolves. The image screamed wildly. 
the mirror flashed suddenly and returned to normal. Drizzt scratched his chin and wondered if there was anything more he could do or discover here. He decided that the risks were simply too great at this time. When Drizzt returned through the lair, he found Wolfgar sitting with Gwenhyver in the main passage, just a few yards from the closed and barred front doors. The barbarian stroked the cat's muscled shoulders and neck. I see that Gwenhyver has won your friendship, Drizzt said as he approached. Wolfgar smiled. A fine ally, he said, giving the animal a playful shake, and a true warrior. He started to rise, but was thrown violently back to the floor. An explosion rocked the lair as a ballista bolt slammed into the heavy doors, splintering their wooden bar and blasting them in. One of the doors broke cleanly in half, and the other's top hinge tore away, leaving the door hanging awkwardly by its twisted bottom hinge. Drizzt drew his scimitars and stood protectively over Wolfgar as the barbarian tried to regain his balance. Abruptly, a bearded fighter leaped onto the hanging door, a circular shield, its standard a mug of foaming ale slung over one arm and a notched and blood-stained battle axe poised in the other. Come out and play, giants, Brunner called, banging his shield with his axe as if the clan hadn't already made enough noise to rouse the lair. Rest easy, wild dwarf, Drizzt laughed. The Verbig are all dead. Brunner spotted his friends and hopped down into the tunnel, soon followed by the rest of the rowdy clan. All dead, the dwarf cried. Damn ye, elf! I knew you'd keep all the play for yourself. What about reinforcements? Wolfgar asked. Brunner chuckled wickedly. Ah, some faith, will you, boy? They're lumped in a common hole. Though Burian's too good for them, I say. Only one's alive. Miserable orc will breathe only as long as he's wagging his stinking tongue. After the episode with the mirror, Drizzt was more than a little interested in interrogating the orc. Have you questioned him? He asked Brunner. Bah, he's mum to now, the dwarf replied. But I've a few things should make him squeal. Drizzt knew better. Orcs were not loyal creatures, but under the enchantment of a mage... Torturing techniques weren't usually much good. They needed something to counteract the magic, and Drizzt had a notion of what might work. Go for Regis, he instructed Brunner. The halfling can make the orc tell us everything we need to know. Torture and be more fun, lamented Brunner, but he too understood the wisdom of the drow's suggestion. He was more than a bit curious and worried about so many giants working together, and now with orcs beside them. Drizzt and Wolfgar sat in the far corner of the small chamber, as far from Brunner and the other two dwarves as they could get. One of Brunner's troops had returned from Lonelywood with Regis that same night, and though they were all exhausted from marching and fighting, they were too anxious about the impending information to sleep. Regis and the captive orc had moved into the adjoining room for a private conversation as soon as the halfling had gotten the prisoner firmly under his control with his ruby pendant. Brunner busied himself preparing a new recipe— giant brain stew, boiling the wretched, foul-smelling ingredients right in the hollowed-out Verbig skull. Use your heads, he'd argued in response to Drizzt and Wolfgar's expressions of horror and disgust. A barnyard goose tastes better than a wild one, because it doesn't use its muscles. Same ought to hold true for giant's brains. Drizzt and Wolfgar hadn't seen things quite the same way. They didn't want to leave the area and miss anything that Regis might have to say, though, so they huddled in the farthest corner of the room, 
carrying on a private conversation. Bruner strained to hear them, for they were talking of something that he had more than a passing interest in. Half for the last one in the kitchen, Wolfgar insisted, and half for the cat. And you only get half for the one in the chasm, Drizzt retorted. Agreed, said Wolfgar. And we split the one in the hole and biggerin down the middle. Drizzt nodded. Then, with all the halves and shared kills added up, it's ten and one-half for me and ten and one-half for you. And four for the cat, added Wolfgar. Four for the cat, Drizzt echoed. Well fought, friend. You've held your own up to now, but I've a feeling that we've a lot more fighting before us, and my greater experience will win out in the end. You grow old, good elf, Wolfgar teased, leaning back against the wall, the whiteness of a confident grin showing through his blonde beard. We shall see. We shall see. Bruner, too, was smiling, both at the good-natured competition between his friends and his continued pride in the young barbarian. Wolfgar was doing well to keep pace with a skilled veteran like Drizdu Arden. Regis emerged from the room, and the gray pall upon his usually jovial face deadened the light-hearted atmosphere. We are in trouble. "'the halfling said grimly. "'Where is the orc?' "'Bruner demanded as he pulled his axe from his belt, "'misunderstanding the halfling's meaning. "'In there. He's all right,' Regis replied. "'The orc had been happy to tell its newfound friend "'everything about Akar Kessel's plans to invade ten towns "'and the size of the gathering forces. "'Regis visibly trembled as he told his friends the news.' All of the orc and goblin tribes and very big clans of this region of the spine of the world are banding together under a sorcerer named Akar Kessel. The halfling began. Drizzt and Wolfgar looked at each other, recognizing Kessel's name. The barbarian had thought Akar Kessel to be a huge frost giant when the verbic had spoken of him. But Drizzt had suspected differently, especially after the incident at the mirror. They planned to attack ten towns, Regis continued, and even the barbarians led by some mighty one-eyed leader, have joined their ranks. Wolfgar's face reddened in anger and embarrassment. His people fighting beside orcs? He knew the leader that Regis spoke of, for Wolfgar was of the tribe of the Elk, and had even once carried the tribe's standard as Hefstag's herald. Drizzt painfully recalled the one-eyed king, too. He put a comforting hand on Wolfgar's shoulder. Go to Bryn Shander, the drow told Bruner and Regis. The people must prepare. Regis winced at the futility. If the orcs' estimation of the assembling army had been correct, all of ten towns joined together could not withstand the assault. The halfling dropped his head and mouthed silently, not wanting to alarm his friends any more than was necessary. We have to leave. Though Bruner and Regis were able to convince Cassius of the urgency and importance of their news, it took several days to round up the other spokesmen for counsel. It was the height of the knucklehead season, late summer, and the last push was on to land the big catch for the final trading caravan to Luskin. The spokesmen of the nine fishing villages understood their responsibilities to their community, but they were reluctant to leave the lakes even for a single day. And so, with the exceptions of Cassius of Brinshander, Muldoon, the new spokesman from Lonelywood, who looked up to Regis as the hero of his town, Glen Sather of Easthaven, the community ever willing to join the good of Ten Towns, and Argawal of Termalane, who held fierce loyalty to Bruner, the mood of the council was not very receptive. Kemp, 
still bearing a grudge against Brunner for the incident over Drizzt at the Battle of Bryn Shander, was especially disruptive. Before Cassius even had the opportunity to present the formalities of order, the gruff spokesman from Targos leaped up from his seat and slammed his fist down on the table. Damn the formal readings and be on with it, Kemp growled. By what right do you order us from the lakes, Cassius? Even as we sit around this table, the merchants in Luskin are preparing for their journey. We have news of an invasion, spokesman Kemp. Cassius answered calmly, understanding the fisherman's anger. I would not have summoned you, any of you, at this time of the season, if it were not urgent. Then the rumors are true, Kemp sneered. An invasion, you say? Bah! I see beyond this sham of a council. He turned on Argawal. The fighting between Targos and Termalane had escalated in the last few weeks, despite Cassius's efforts to defuse it, and bring the principals of the warring towns to the bargaining table. Argawal had agreed to a meeting, but Kemp was steadfastly against it, and so, with suspicions running high, the timing of this urgent council could not have been worse. This is a pitiful attempt indeed, Kemp roared. He looked around at his fellow spokesman. A pitiful effort by Argawal and his scheming supporters to bring about a favorable settlement for Termalane in their dispute with Targos. Incited by the aura of suspicion that Kemp had infused, Shermont, the new spokesman from Karakonig, pointed an accusing finger at Jensen Brent of Cardinable. What part have you played in this treachery? He spat at his bitter rival. Shermont had come into this position after the spokesman from Karakonig had been killed on the waters of Lac Dinisher in a battle with a Dinable boat. Durham Luger had been Shermont's friend and leader and the new spokesman's policies toward hated Kerr Dinable were even more iron-handed than those of his predecessor. Regis and Brunner sat back quietly in helpless dismay through all of the initial bickering. Finally, Cassius slammed his gavel down, snapping its handle in two and quieting the others long enough to make a point. A few moments of silence, he commanded. Hold your venomous words and listen to the messenger of grim tidings. The others fell back in their seats and remained silent, but Cassius feared that the damage had already been done. He turned the floor over to Regis. Honestly terrified by what he had learned from the captive orc, Regis passionately told of the battle his friends had won over the Verbig lair and on the grass of Daledrop. And Bruner has captured one of the orcs that was escorting the giants, he said emphatically. Some of the spokesmen sucked in their breath at the notion of such creatures banding together. But Kemp and some of the others, ever suspicious of the more immediate threats of their rivals, and already decided on the true purposes of the meeting, remained unconvinced. The orc told us, Regis continued grimly, of the coming of a powerful wizard, Akar Kessel, and his vast hosts of goblins and giants. They mean to conquer ten towns. He thought that his dramatics would prove effective. But Kemp was outraged. On the word of an orc, Cassius, you summoned us from the lakes at this critical time on the threat of a stinking orc? The halfling's tale is not an uncommon one, Sherman added. All of us have heard of a captured goblin wagging its tongue in any direction it could think of to save its worthless head. Or perhaps you had other motives, Kemp hissed again, eyeing Argawal. Cassius, though he truly believed the grim tidings, sat back in his chair and said nothing. 
With tensions on the lakes as high as they were and the final trading fair of a particularly fruitless fishing season fast approaching, he had suspected that this would occur. He looked resigned at Bruner and Regis and shrugged once again that the council degenerated into a shouting match. Amidst the ensuing commotion, Regis slipped the ruby pendant out from under his waistcoat and nudged Bruner. They looked at it and each other in disappointment. They had hoped that the magical gem wouldn't be needed. Regis pounded his gavel in a call for the floor and was granted it by Cassius. Then, as he had done five years previous, he hopped up on the table and walked toward his chief antagonist. By this time, the result wasn't what Regis had expected. Kemp had spent many hours over the last five years reflecting on that council before the barbarian invasion. The spokesman was glad of the final outcome of that whole situation and, in truth, realized that he and all of Ten Towns were indebted to the halfling for making them heed his warning. Yet, it bothered Kemp more than a little that his initial stance had been so easily swayed. He was a brawling type whose first love, even above fishing, was battle. But his mind was keen and always alert to danger. He had observed Regis several times over the last few years and had listened intently to the tales of the halfling's prowess in the art of persuasion. As Regis approached, the burly spokesman averted his eyes. "'Be gone, trickster!' he growled, shoving his chair defensively back from the table. "'You seem to have a strange way of convincing people of your point of view, and I'll not fall under your spell this time!' he addressed the other spokesman. "'Where the halfling?' He has some magic about him, be sure. Kemp understood that he had no way of proving his claims, but he also realized that he wouldn't have to. Regis looked about, flustered and unable to answer even the spokesman's accusations. Even Argowal, though the spokesman from Tourmaline tactively tried to hide the fact, would no longer look Regis straight in the eye. Sit down, trickster, Kemp taunted. Your magic's no good once we're on to you. Bruner, silent up till now, suddenly leaped up, his face contorted with rage. "'Is this too a trick, dog of Targos?' the dwarf challenged. He pulled a sack from his belt and rolled its contents, a severed verbig head, down the table towards Kemp. Several of the spokesmen jumped back in horror, but Kemp remained unshaken. "'We have dealt with rogue giants many times before,' the spokesman replied coolly. "'Rogues!' Bruner echoed incredulously. Two score of the beasts were cut down, orcs and ogres besides. A passing band, Kemp explained evenly, stubbornly, and all dead, so there you have it. Why then does this become a matter for the council? If it is accolades you desire, mighty dwarf, then you shall have them. His voice dripped with venom, and he watched Bruno's reddening face with deep pleasure. Perhaps Cassius could make a speech in your honor before all of the people of Ten Towns. Bruner slammed his fists onto the table, eyeing all the men about him in an open threat to anyone who would continue Kemp's insults. We have come before you to help you save your homes and your kin, he roared. Might be that you believe us and you'll do something to survive. Or might be that you'll hear the words of the dog of Targos, and you'll do nothing. Either way, I've had enough of you. Do as you will, and may your gods show you favor. He turned and stalked out of the room.
Bruner's grim tone brought many of the spokesmen to realize that the threats were simply too grave to be passed off as a deception of a desperate captive or even as a more insidious plan by Cassius and some conspirators. Yet Kemp, proud and arrogant and certain that Argowal and his non-human friends, the halfling and the dwarf, were usually the facade of an invasion to gain some advantage over the superior city of Targos, would not budge. Second only to Cassius in all of ten towns, Kemp's opinion carried great weight, especially to the people of Karakonig and Cairdinable, who, in light of Bryn Shander's unshakable neutrality in their struggle, sought the favor of Targos. Enough spokesmen remained suspicious of their rivals and were willing to accept Kemp's explanation to prevent Cassius from bringing the council to decisive action. The lines were soon clearly drawn. Regis watched the spectacle as the opposing sides volleyed back and forth, but the halfling's own credibility had been destroyed, and he had no impact on the rest of the meeting. In the end, little was decided. The most that Argawal, Glensather, and Muldoon could squeeze out of Cassius was a public declaration that a general warning should go out to every household in ten towns. Let the people know of our grim tidings, and let them be assured that I shall make room within the walls of Bryn Shander for every person who desires our protection. Regis eyed the divided spokesman. Without unity, the halfling wondered how much protection even the walls of Bryn Shander could offer. <laughs>